Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello. As we hurtle towards the end of 2023, it's been a whirlwind year career-wise. My book about the people of Hampton Court and the Palace hit shelves this year in Britain, Ireland, America and Canada. I'm so unbelievably touched by how the Palace has been received. It's been a bestseller in the UK, where I'm extremely delighted and flattered to say the Palace has been named a BBC History Book of the Year, an Aspects of History Best Book of 2023, and Hatchard's Book of the Month. In America, the Palace was an Amazon US editor's pick for Best History, and thank you to everyone, including booksellers like Hatchard's, Waterstones, and Amazon, and especially to the readers and those who supported the book. The Palace is doing so well, I do not take that for granted. I'm very, very happy. I hope if you haven't read it yet and do that you'll enjoy it, and that if you have read it, you have enjoyed it. Thanks to everyone who's been in touch too to say how much they've liked it. And there is some quite exciting news about the palace coming in 2024. But first, let's reflect on past and present rather than look too much to the future as we kick off this, the season four final episode of Single Malt History, from which we'll be sending you off with a Yuletide spirit of joy. In the spirit of that send-off, and before we get to this week's Christmas guest, Jay Britton, a look back on Single Malt History's fourth season, where we've travelled to ancient Egypt, Norman England, 12th century Cyprus, 13th century Mongolia, Tudor Ireland, Victorian Belfast, and Edwardian Canada. We've joined princesses on crusade, Jacobean priest hunters, and spying princes in First World War Vienna. We've seen Henry VII's wine preferences at Hampton Court, Elizabeth II's coronation ball, and American regiments in the Second World War. We've also started a new feature this season on certain episodes, listener polls via Spotify, so I thought I'd share the results of those polls with you. For our episode, The Lionheart's Queen, I asked, based on what you heard, what do you think went wrong with Berengaria and Richard's marriage? 54% thought the clue to the malaise lay in the fact that Richard I was away at war too often. 31% agreed with the theory that it was because King Richard was homosexual. 15% of you put it down to a clash of personalities. In my interview with Dame Penelope Wilton about her role as the Queen Mother in the new West End hit show Backstairs Billy, I asked listeners, who has been your favourite on-screen Queen Mother so far? In at third place was Imelda Staunton with 13% of the vote. Imelda played the future Queen Mother in the 2003 British political drama The Cambridge Spies. Silver medal, with 25% of you picking her, was Victoria Hamilton, who played the Queen Mother in seasons one and two of the Netflix series The Crown. But first place went to Helena Bonham Carter's Oscar-nominated performance in The King's Speech, with 63% of you picking her as favourite. 
The other possible choices were Juliette Aubrey, Natalie Dormer, and Sylvia Sims. In the next episode, The Mongol Empire, I asked which historical empire you wished you knew more about, and it was a three-way tie between the British, the Japanese, and the Mughal. When it came to the episode on Winston Churchill, the question asked, which is closest to your view of Winston Churchill, to which 9% of you voted for Moral Monster, 18% voted for Hero, and 73% for A Flawed Genius. I'm enunciating the numbers quite firmly because you might be able to hear a little bit of a cold that I am nearly certain I could feel coming upon me on the plane back from New York. There was a coffer on the other side of the plane, and I just know it landed right in my sinuses through that recycled air. So yes, 9%, 18%, and 73%, so it doesn't sound like 80 versus 18 or 90 versus 9, etc. Maybe I'm being paranoid, but I don't think so. In this month's discussion of Elizabeth II's 1953 ball at Hampton Court, I asked, of these six, which Hampton Court queen is your favourite? A poll which was won by Anne Boleyn with 56% of the vote. In second place, joint, was Catherine Parr and Mary of Teck with 22% each. The other candidates were Mary I, Henrietta Maria of France and Caroline of Ansbach. Thanks to everyone who voted and to Spotify for curating it. I would also like to say a 2023 farewell, Avinazen, and thanks to my contributors, the actors and musicians who lent their talents to this season of single malt history. Caleb Carragher, Danny Cunningham, Colm Dorn, Jake Douglas, Emily Rose Edgar, Marianne McGuire, Ashley Montgomery, and Paul Stores. And to this season's guests, the Marquis of Anglesey, Dame Penelope Wilton, Robert Child, Phil Downing, Dan Jones, Nicholas Morton, Siobhan O'Shaughnessy, Bob Sheard, and Anthony Tucker-Jones. I'm very grateful to them all, especially since this is a fonder and longer farewell for us. Uh, this is the beginning of a six-month hiatus for single malt history. Season 5 will be airing at the end of May 2024 DV, which seems the perfect time and segue for me to tell you that the reason for my bunkering down away from the microphone is that I'm working on a new book, A Private Life of Mary Queen of Scots's son, James VI and I, told through the stories of the six men whom he loved over the course of his life. I cannot tell you how much I'm enjoying it. 16th century Scotland in particular, just what an unbelievable, fascinating treat to research and write about. But James and his merry men will be my company until spring is past. In the meantime, I will be resharing past episodes from our previous seasons via YouTube. And so, without further ado, let's get to this week's guest, and I can't think of a more cheerful way to embrace the winter warmness than with this curator of such beautiful historical music. Ladies, gentlemen, excellencies, and eminences, today we are joined by the extraordinary musical talent of Jay Britton, creator of the Tudor Songbook. Jay's career has seen her perform in operas at the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, 
the Royal Albert Hall and Westminster Abbey in London, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and many of England's finest stately homes, including Hever Castle, childhood residence of the tragic Queen Anne Boleyn, where I personally have been lucky enough to hear Jay perform more than once during dinner in the Great Hall, which is as close an experience as safely possible to dining like a Boleyn back in the glory days of Hever. Classically trained at the Royal Academy of Music and subsequently attaining her master's degree from the Royal College of Music, Jay's Tudor Songbook is the buzzword or buzz tune of the moment. And I'm so pleased to welcome her here to the show. Thank you, Jay, and hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. So let's begin at the beginning or thereabouts with the obvious question of what is the Tudor Songbook and what gave you the idea to create it? Well, the Tudor Songbook is me in full Tudor costume or Elizabethan costume singing music that would have been performed at the time. So it's really an immersive experience for people, another layer of immersion. When you go into a historic property, it's lovely that you can see everything. Quite often there can be things cooking in the kitchens, you can smell things. And if you have some music going on, you can also hear things. And I think you can learn a lot about any period in history by listening to the music of the time. Well, you've mentioned locations and you've performed in some splendid locations, as I mentioned in the intro. Where so far has been your favourite with the Tudor songbook or maybe one that felt particularly special? It's so hard to answer because actually (laughs) every single place that I've been has been completely unique. Every single property has got its own unique history and its own things that make it incredibly special. But I think two that really stand out for me, like you've mentioned already, Hever Castle, it being the the childhood home of Anne Boleyn and Anne Boleyn being a historical figure that I am so deeply interested in, it felt quite spine tingling for me to be able to stand there on the anniversary of, of her execution. I think it's the last two years in a row I've done that now and been able to sing with her voice on that day it's that's something that's incredibly special to me and touches me quite deeply and the other one is the mary rose i went to the mary rose museum so it's not a stately home but it is the um the museum that houses henry VIII's mighty warship the mary rose um in portsmouth and i've sung in the open part i think they call it, is it the atrium i'm not sure what they call it in there but the part where you can actually breathe in the same air that is the hull of the ship so really being in front of Henry VIII's warship, singing sometimes music that was written by Henry VIII himself is, again, one of those pinch me moments. Well, as you've mentioned, there have been some quite or very moving moments for you. And I want to take you back to one that you just mentioned. On the 19th of May 2022, the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution, you mm-hmm. were invited to sing in the courtyard of her childhood home where you performed Oh Death, Rock Me Asleep a song which legend claims Queen Anne wrote during her final imprisonment. I was there uh, for your performance and it was bone chilling in the best way. What <laughs> <Thank> is, <you. laughs> yeah, I had to stress the best <laughs> word. <laughs> Realise bone chilling carries many a connotation. Um, what, so Jay, what is the significance and the story of Oh Death, Rock Me Asleep? It's an absolutely incredible and quite haunting song. So like you said, um, legend has it that Queen Anne Boleyn wrote this song, Oh Death, Rock Me Asleep, while she was awaiting her execution in the Tower of London. 
and that's that's one of the things that makes it the most haunting and I think it is more interesting because it has this legend attached to it and um it can be traced back there is a Tudor manuscript in the British Library and it has a collection of poems in it and it there's no evidence of it not existing as far back or as early as 1536 the uh, the evidence for it not being written by Anne Boleyn probably out ways the evidence for it being written by her mainly because when she was imprisoned in the tower she was especially at first in prison surrounded by ladies that were not fans of hers she wasn't comfortable with them either she she didn't like them and the ladies were given the instruction to record to write down and to recall every single word that Anne Boleyn uttered during her imprisonment and to report it back and the same with the letters. Nothing would have left her imprisonment in the tower without people knowing about it. So I think if she had written this, it would have been indisputable. But it does seem, when you look at the the, the words, it does seem to have been written about her. And I think that in itself makes it incredibly beautiful and incredibly haunting. The, the accompaniment of the music and the song itself have got a really hypnotic feel to it. And you can almost picture yourself, and I think it was Eric Ives talking about this, this poem and, and the song, that it puts the performer into the, into the shoes of Anne Boleyn and you can put yourself in her place. And that haunting quality, the hypnotic quality and the repetitiveness in the accompaniment really does almost take you as a performer into a meditative state. And I can quite imagine her when I am singing this, just slowly kind of slowing her mind down trying to prepare herself for the impending execution. It's quite profound, really. It is. I hadn't thought about it that way. It is. It, it's very, it's the quality of it. And obviously the location helped as well, but there is a, mm. there is a slowing. Yeah. I don't know what the word is. There's something about Oh Death Rock Me Asleep. It is. There's a, a kind of very dark lullaby quality to it. it. Exactly. Lullaby was the word that I was absolutely yeah. about to use. It's like a lullaby, but a lullaby, but how macabre. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Rock me asleep. It is. It's a lullaby, and it's it's like she's comforting herself. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Actually, yeah. can we talk about your work with Gina Clark? Um, yes, so, yes. One, it's extraordinary. Great stuff. So, what is it? How did it come about? And how does it help your performances, Jay? Right. So, for anyone who doesn't know, Gina Clark is the um, the mastermind and the master hands, should I say, behind. Um, the Tudor Dreams historical costumia, that is her, um, that's her business. And she makes historical costumes and she makes everything that I wear. Her work is absolutely exquisite. Every single stitch is done with care. Everything is precise. And for me, it is an enormous part of what I do because I'd like to make it as immersive as possible. So it's lovely being able to perform music from the time, but to be able to perform it in close in the time as well just adds another layer of it, both for me as a performer, because it changes. The minute I put on one of those dresses, it changes the way I stand. I have to stand up a lot straighter than the slouchy mess I usually am. And <laughs> it's just because you're you're very, very heavily corseted into these costumes. They are, they're not the most comfortable garments to wear, but it is what the ladies of the time would have been wearing. And I think for audiences as well, it, it's it's nice for people with be it in a full-length concert and they're sitting watching me for 45 minutes or an hour, or if it's people wandering through a, a historic palace or a, a stately home and seeing someone in the costume, I think it really adds to it. And 
everything that I'm trying to do with the Tudor songbook is to keep it as high quality as possible and having costumes the caliber of Gina's really really does help that for me yeah well I, I mean i've seen you several times and i can vouch for it it is of the highest quality and i think you felt how heavy that um that mantle was that was not yeah. that's not a light piece of kit is it <laughs> no i remember helping you i put your your robe back on as um yeah. uh, in your elizabethan costume and mm. my i mean that the sheer weight of it i i had yeah. done um theater years ago and i remember yeah having a an 18th century aristocrats mm. jacket on and i remember the weight of that and it yeah. being and being told it'll even out over your shoulders but it does a bit <laughs> it does a bit but that but but your i mean that coronation robe was good grief when i remember lifting it up and i thought how on earth is yeah. this i was sort of and it's one of the so i like to kind of say that actually i she calls herself the historical costumier. I almost feel like I'm doing her a disservice by referring to what she makes as costumes because they are absolutely just historically accurate and functioning. Yeah. They're stunning. They're well, absolutely well, They are, Jay, but also I think to her credit, often what happens is that, particularly when you're dealing with someone like, say, Anne Boleyn, who was a very mm. famously good, snappy dresser, a lot yep. of the times with these recreations, they don't necessarily capture that. And I think yes. the one you have with Anne Boleyn that Gina made is, I think, very elegant. It's, you mm. know, it's it's both accurate and elegant. It's not at all, because I think, I mean, there's accounts from the time that she made, a, you know, she was always changing her clothes and she was the she glass. Was. Yeah. That's right. So she'd be adding little extra embellishments or, yeah. or changing, changing, a, changing the, the position of her hood and then slowly and surely the other ladies of the court would be going oh that looks nice yeah. I'm going to do that and that's you know, women across time have been doing that we see someone who we we perceive to be stylish and we we try and recreate that yes and I and think that... someone I, I, she is the ultimate Anne Boleyn is the the a kind of a legacy of the Tudors isn't she and it's that iconic look the first leaves the long first leaves the French hood her face has become absolutely synonymous with with the Tudor period. Totally, without doubt. Um, mm. And I think that I mean, I've do you know it was quite nice because I had seen, I had I think I saw the I guess I saw the Anne Boleyn one, and then yeah, the, but the Elizabeth one, the fabric as well is really gorgeous. I mean, it really, really is. That kind yeah. of that that just it, it's very monarchical that sort of splendid mm. golden tint that that yeah. i mean is that based off the coronation portrait the um the the mantle the robe the, yeah. over the, the robe was that's part of the coronation portrait i do have the dress from the coronation portrait as well um but it, at the moment that's so restrictive on me i wouldn't be able to sing in it so uh, that's just another elizabethan it's, gown that i happen to have that matches tight. the color it even looks tight on elizabeth it looks yeah, very, yeah. very very restrictive mm incredibly restrictive and it's it's again that iconic figure that elizabeth had in her mm. portrait because the tudors were all about um propaganda weren't they yeah power the the power and the presence of the tudors and elizabeth was a, a product of her mum and her dad in this so she had the power the power poses in her portraits but she also oh. had like she liked to display her long slender fingers yes she it's icons all over her gowns her portraits are littered with meaning 
even the way that she will have a pearl drop placed right at the bottom of her bodice and pearls representing virginity and the positioning of it. It's just every single thing has been thought about. Well, it has. And also you have to, first of all, there's no, this is why when people, one of the things I always find slightly dubious is when people mm. say there are hidden meanings in portraits. Oh, they're not no, hidden, are they? No. <laughs> Trust me, there was no, no one is, like if anyone ever tells you that there's a hidden pregnancy in a portrait first of all if you're trying to hide a pregnancy you don't have a portrait painted to celebrate it and second exactly it's not like nowadays where someone's going to accidentally snap a picture of you you'd have sat there for right several exactly hours. <laughs> and you and also um all aristocrats were trained in how to decipher the meanings yeah. of portraits so they these were these were very loud yeah. messages yeah. and um I think the other thing is that you know in terms of just the so the messages the hidden allegories are for fellow members of the elite but i also think there's a broad mm. use to these portraits because in a yeah. society where where literacy is not universal even among the exactly. upper classes yeah you you have to do a lot of your your government work yeah through image yeah i couldn't agree more but then it's the same with the music as well especially when you get into the elizabethan periods and the prevalence of the broadside ballads mm. that they would absolutely the the words to these broadside ballads printed and sold for a very small price at, on market squares and it would be ye old country ditty to be sung to the tune of one of the most famous one being Greensleeves. We all think it's oh Henry VIII wrote that about Anne Boleyn. I think that's been universally yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a shame, but it's one of those ones. I love Greensleeves. I absolutely adore it. And listens so to it. It's got this this captivating question mark above it all. Oh, was it about her? Was it not? And if that's something that gets people into listening to Tudor music, I'm all for that. I think that's great. Well, I'm 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 all I'm just fairly dubious of people who like to go through life gleefully debunking things. Um, well, gleefully debunking things, yeah. I, I'm I'm not there for that. But I just think the more we know, like absolutely. knowledge is power. And it's exciting. The fact that still 500 years later, we're still finding out stuff. That's that's amazing. Correct. And I think also the um, the thing with that, something like Greensleeves or Oh Death Rock Me Asleep mm. is, it, whether or not it was written by Henry or Anne, and I think I, I agree with you. I mean, Oh Death Rock Me Asleep, very likely not. Greensleeves, nearly certainly not. Mm. Um, but yeah. they were still listening to them. There was still that music still brings you to that period. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jay, before I let you go, mm. you created a unique sensory experience for fans of Tudor history and the history of music. Now, this, after everything we've just said, might seem a very unfair question, <laughs> but is there any one song from the 16th century which you enjoy performing the most? Yes, there is. And I did have to think quite hard about this. Because there is so much music there. It'd be very easy for me to say, oh, Death Rock Me Asleep, it's amazing. Or Pastime with Good Company, because it encapsulates the young Henry VIII. But my favourite one is slightly more obscure. It's a song called Jouissance et vous honorez. And it's by um, Claudine Sermacy. And I won't um, try and read all the words out in French, although it's performed in French. And this is a song that was in Anne Boleyn's songbook. The songbook that we know belonged to Anne Boleyn because she signed her name in it. And it's currently in the Royal College of Music Library in London. And I was actually fortunate enough to go and hold this book. I've seen it. I sang a few little notes from it so I can say that I've sung from the same hymn, hymn sheet as Anne Boleyn. And it's a <laughs> number of songs in there. Some are sacred, some are secular. They're in a mixture of French and Latin. 
And jouissance de Fudonre, the the paraphrased translation will take you like this. And let's bear in mind when I'm reading this that this was this is predating Anne being the queen. She styles herself in her signature as Mistress Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn now thus. So it's before she was the queen, possibly when she was courting Henry VIII. And the words to the song go like this. Love's climax will I give to you, my friend, and I will lead you to the target of your deep desire. Alive, I will not you askew. E'en when my time on earth is through, love's spirits will remain afire. If you should have a care for me, for you I'll care the same degree. On this love you will educate, but if you chase that it should be, with me you need not now agree, for good things come to those who wait. And wow. my didn't she make him wait? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, That's the did. promise. Love's climax will I give to you, my friends, and I will lead you to the top. I mean, you couldn't. It's that is something that you wouldn't be able to say to someone's face, but you can sing it, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one of the things that I love about music in general from this period, and especially when you go into the Elizabethans. Music was a way of of courting for what you wanted. Absolutely. Be it, be it to a potential a potential mistress, a potential wife, a potential husband, or indeed to the queen. Courtiers to Elizabeth I would would either have songs written or write them themselves and have performances made. And it was it was a way of courting what, what you wanted. And that's one of the things that I think is so incredible about the music of the time, because it's kind of going places where you wouldn't dare in other times. Yeah, there is there is a um, liberty granted to music. Yeah, exactly. Dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Jay, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me online on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and I can't get used to calling it X, but X. And um, the artist am- formerly known as Twitter. The artist formerly known as Twitter, goodness knows what it's going to be next week or the week after. But um, <laughs> <laughs> while Mr. Musk has got it, we must call it X. And um, I am the Tudor Songbook on all of those platforms. And you can see videos of songs that I perform and photos of what I've been up to. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Jay, for stopping by. I really have, I think this is so interesting. I think people are really going to enjoy it. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. And with that, all that's left for me to do is to wish each and every one of you a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Fruitful Yule and Solstice, and Happy Kwanzaa. My family and I will be keeping Christmas in the Northern Irish countryside this year, and I'll be at the far north coast in hopefully blissfully cold and strong winds coming in off the Atlantic for old year's night. Whether you celebrate all, some or none of these, I wish you a safe and contented end to 2023 and start to 2024. Thank you for all your support and see you DV in spring.